Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. In 1991, I was in fifth grade and I played peewee football, and uh, my football illustrations are almost to an end when the NFL season wraps up, but until that time, I'll abuse them and use them frequently. Uh, 1991, I was in fifth grade in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the Packers were on the verge of making a trade that would mark them for the remainder of their career and their life as Packer football fans, organization. And they decided to trade a draft pick, a first-round draft pick, for a quarterback that was playing for the Atlanta Falcons. I don't know if you guys have heard of the name Brett Favre before. Perhaps you might have. Uh, They made a trade that day, and it was probably, it's been labeled in the top 15 best trades ever made in the history of the NFL. Uh, Brett Favre had a terrible season in Atlanta, his first year as a rookie. Ron Wolf, as the GM for the Packers, saw something in him that other people didn't see, and they had the coach, Mike Holmgren, that would patiently endure the fact that Brett Favre's first pass was an interception return for a touchdown as a rookie. His last pass as a Packer was an interception uh, as well. So it's, he changed the franchise drastically. And when Brett Favre went from an Atlanta Falcon in 1991 to a Green Bay Packer in 1992, several things were different for him. Things were going to change. First of all, he was going from an organization that had no Super Bowl championships to an organization that had won the first two Super Bowl championships, the Green Bay Packer. He was going to have a different playbook that he was going to have to learn. He was coming into a different organization, a different culture. He would have different teammates. Now he would be passing to the likes of of Robert Brooks and Sterling Sharp, no longer passing to the guys he he passed to in Atlanta the last year. So many things were going to change for Brett Favre. So many things were different. But one of the main things, it might be an oversimplification to say this, one of the main changes, the differences that Brett Favre was going to make is that every Sunday and every Monday night that he was playing for the Green Bay Packers, the uniform that he put on over his shoulder pads was no longer the black, white, silver, and red of the Atlanta Falcons. It was now the green, gold, and white of the Green Bay Packers. Now he put on a brand new uniform. And with that uniform came a certain set of expectations. There was a tradition in Green Bay that was needed to be held up by the man at the helm taking snaps behind center. Every time Brett Favre put on that uniform, now he was, a, he was a Green Bay Packer, and he displayed the characteristics and the qualities of a Green Bay Packer quarterback because of this different uniform, this different standard of excellence. He was on a new team now, and he was going to show it by the outside. Last time we were in Colossians, we looked at verses 1 through 14 in chapter 3. And we talked about the transformation of the heart. Paul told us that becoming a Christian is similar to putting on a new uniform. On a daily basis, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take off the old, our old lifestyle, our old sinful patterns, our old habits, all the things that we were defined by or identified by in our previous life without Christ. We're taking all of that off 
and now we're putting on a brand new uniform. We're putting on the uniform that is in Christ. We're putting on compassionate hearts, gentleness, kindness, love for one another. We're putting on all of these things and and we're taking something off and we're putting something on that shows on the outside that now we're on a new team. Before we were on a team that was going nowhere but to death and destruction. Now we're on a team that is going somewhere. It's going to life. It's going to redemption. It's going to significance and things that ultimately matter. Colossians 3, 1 through 14 is all about clothing yourself with Christ. Colossians 3, 15 through 25, now there's a shift. Paul is going to make a move from the Christian's heart. Now he's going to go to the Christian's home. And here's what this passage is all about. The gospel is so powerful Paul says that not only will it transform our hearts, but it drastically transforms and touches our relationships, our family relationships, our work relationships, and the people that we are closest with. What Paul was saying in chapter three is very simple. In verses one through 14, the gospel radically changes our hearts individually. We take off the old and we put on the new. In verses 15 through 25, the gospel radically affects our relationships directionally. And we start from the inside and what God does morphs to the outside. It affects who we are on the outside. And he defines three types of relationships that the gospel should affect on a daily basis in our lives. Number one, our family relationships, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children. Number two, it affects our work relationships, bosses, masters, those who are underneath you. Number three, it affects our church relationships. We're going to see that one first in verses 15 through 16. Last time we looked at heart transformation. I want to look at Colossians 3, verse 15. We'll actually go through chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to talk about um, life transformation. It starts on the inside with a premise, and it moves to the outside with a precedent. Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Life transformation. It starts on the inside with a premise for the Christian. Look down at Colossians 3. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And if you've got a highlighter or you underline your Bible, I would emphasize that word rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And if you highlight or underline, I would highlight that word dwell. Verse 16, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, everything Paul wrote here builds on his main command. It takes us all the way back up to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Skip back up to verse 12. Your text should say something like this, put on then. Remember, Paul just told us what to take off. He listed six things. I think it's back in verse 5 of Colossians 3. In verse 8, he lists another six things to take off. Then we get to verse 12, and he says, put on six things. All right, and this command is closely associated with it when we pick up right here in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule. 
Paul is building off of that command to put on that started back in verse 12, to put on these six Christian virtues. On top of that, he wants two things ultimately to happen. Now, before Rome was an empire, it was a Roman kingdom. It was ruled by a king, it was ruled by a monarch. And for a long time, the Roman kingdom existed with turmoil and bloodshed. Every time there was a transfer in power, every time a new king came to the throne, every time the the bloodline supposedly came to an end and and the next king was in line, it was going to be a bloody transition of power. The Roman Empire started as a Roman kingdom, and they stopped it. They made it actually a Roman Republic because of that. And when Rome became a republic, not only would they not have a king, but now they had two councils, teams that would rule together. These councils were responsible for electing the next king who was put into power in Rome, or the the next person, the Caesar, the, the influential leaders that would lead them in the future. But these two councils had veto power over each other. They were always fighting with one another. The history of the Roman Republic was just like the history of the Roman Kingdom. It was filled with war and it was filled with bloodshed and conflict. In 27 BC, Octavian defeated Mark Antony. You guys know why that happened? Mark Antony married Cleopatra. And that's what happens when you fall in love. You end up committing suicide and dying. All right? Just... Hey, it's, okay, sorry about that. Just come on, people. Play, play nice with me, all right? Just kidding, just kidding. But it really did happen. Um, Octavian and, uh, defeated Mark Antony largely because he was off with Cleopatra and nobody really liked that. And so now, with nobody to, to battle for leadership, uh, positions of influence, in the Roman Empire, everything fell to Augustus Octavian, who would be the Caesar. And from 27 BC until 180 AD, about 200 years, Rome finally experienced no more bloody turmoil between transitions of power. Uh, The warring, the battles largely stopped. Now there was peace in Rome. It It was so peaceful, in fact, it's called the Pax Romana. It was a time when Rome really thrived with uh, infrastructure, building Roman roads, architecture, uh, expanded across the Roman Empire. Everywhere around the Mediterranean Sea was Rome's influence, power, even known today for for the things that they brought to the culture and civilization at that time. When we read this phrase in verse 15, your text should say something like, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Perhaps the Apostle Paul was thinking about the Pax Romana. Perhaps he was, he was influenced by the Roman Empire and what it had become in the unprecedented time of peace with no war. But notice the context in which this command is given. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. Well, first, I want to say a couple things about this. The calling for Christians to salvation is both individual and it's corporate. The individual Christian calling, the calling of the gospel is inescapably individual. Every person must respond to the call of the gospel. 
But the calling of the gospel is also inescapably corporate. At the same time you respond individually to the gospel, you also ipso facto at the very same time respond into the body of Christ, into a corporate identity as the people of God. The peace that Paul is referring to here refers to and characterizes the community of faith, a peace that should be established in local and in the universal church of all true Christian believers everywhere. And how does that happen? How is this peace going to be experienced in local churches? With different people, different perspectives, different wants, different likes, different dislikes, different ages, different social statuses, different preferences, different histories, people that grew up in the church, people that didn't grow up in the church, people that know some types of music, people that don't know other types of music, people that grew up with scripture readings and people that didn't grow up with scripture readings. How, does, how is this going to be achieved? How is this unity and this peace of Christ going to be achieved with such a, an eclectic and a diverse group of people as we experience in the body of Christ? It's gonna happen by ruling in our hearts. Rule here refers to the activity of an umpire, rendering verdicts in contested situations. Here's what the NET, the New English Translation says. It says, let the peace of Christ be in control of your hearts. You might say, let the peace of Christ be the decisive factor in all of your decisions and everything that happens in the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ control and rule. And what that means is the deciding, the final ruling principle of virtue for any church, any Bible-believing church, should be the peace of Christ. Everything we do, every decision we make, every time we are together, the peace of Christ should be experienced, should be thought of, should be contemplated, and should be urged with the necessity of maintaining the bond of peace that the Holy Spirit has given to us. This command for the peace of Christ to rule in verse 15 is parallel to the very next command at the beginning of verse 16. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell. Now, if if rule has the idea of control, which it does in verse 15, dwell has the idea of establishing permanent residence in the body of Christ. Let the word of Christ find a home with you, with your church, with your community of faith. Notice the modifier here. It doesn't just say, let the, uh, the word of Christ dwell. It says, let it dwell richly. All right, and what does that mean? I love what one commentator says as he defines this. He says, the word of Christ should not be superficial, superficial or passing, but it should be a deep and penetrating contemplation, enabling the message to have transforming power in the community. What that means is we don't just give lip service to the word of God. We study the word, we preach the word, we examine the word, we interpret the word, we dig deeply into the truth of God's word. In everything that we do, we let it be influenced, overshadowed by, and infiltrated and filtered through what God has for us in his word. I love how Spurgeon puts this for individuals. He says, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. Right? Let's, let's apply that to the church, right? A church who preaches the Bible 
so much that it begins to fall apart belongs to a church who isn't stable and strong in the Word of God. It seems oversimplistic, it seems so simple, but it is profound in its simplicity. Verse 16 is marked by, by three distinct participles. Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. It will happen when we are doing three things. When we are teaching forests, when we are admonishing, and when we are singing to one another. How do we make sure, how do we how do we ensure that the Word of God is going to dwell richly among us? We're going to teach it. We're going to admonish people with it. That's probably the negative side of teaching. Teaching would be more positive, admonishing more negative. Hey, this is hard truth for God's Word. Sometimes we need to hear that in our lives. And we're going to sing it to one another. And what's interesting is there's almost an exact replica of Colossians 3 in Ephesians 5 and 6. And we're, we'll talk about this in just a little bit at a deeper level. But this is one of the places in the New Testament, one of the very few places in the New Testament that we, we get a little bit more detail into the life of the body of Christ, what our corporate worship should look like. There's not a whole lot said in the Bible about forms. There's a lot said about functions. The purpose of, of the church is to make disciples is to glorify God in everything that we say and do, is to exalt the Lordship of Christ, to keep Christ center, right? But there's, there's not a whole lot that's said about forms. Well, what does this look like? Is this the public reading of Scripture? Is this reading Scripture in small groups? Is this sermons, how you and I experience them on Sunday mornings at this time? How is all of this coming together, and what does this actually look like? And, and unfortunately, this verse is way too brief, and the specifics are way too uncertain to go into a whole lot of detail about what the Apostle Paul here prescribes for churches at the, at the detailed level, at the minutia. We actually have a lot of freedom in the body of Christ and how the Word is taught, on how singing is done, on how admonishing one another actually takes place. There's different forms, but there's one ultimate function. But here's at least three things that we can for certain, take away from this verse, these verses in Colossians chapter 3. Number one, the word of Christ should always be central in our worship. Everything should take us back to the word, should be informed by the word, should bring us to the word and the gospel, the truth of the gospel through Christ. Number two, variety in music is normal. There's different psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All right, so most people, most commentators, when they look at that, they say that the Psalms there refers to music that is played on stringed instruments. Maybe they were direct Psalms that came right out of Israel's Psalter. The songs we know from Israel that were carried over into these New Testament first century churches. Some people think that the hymns there refers to specifically songs about Christ. They're not the hymns that you and I have in our hymnals, all right? It took a long time before those came out. Most of those were produced in the modern period. 16, 17, 1800s, when you read them. That's not what Paul's, Paul's not referring to those. Most people think spiritual songs might have been spiritual content that was actually put to pagan music, to pagan rhythms and familiar songs from the culture at that time. You just bring um, spiritual language into those songs. I, you know, I, there's not a whole lot more that we can say 
about music in churches from these verses. There's, there's certain things that we can absolutely say. And so let's be central on the main things and leave flexibility and grace and freedom for secondary things. And the main things are the word is central. Right? Number two, variety of music is normal and every person is responsible. Number three, to one another. This teaching, admonishing, the singing, it happens to one another. This is not just the responsibility of your elders. It's not just the responsibility of your pastors and deacons. This is the responsibility of all of us to carry out this command to one another with one another in the body of Christ, all right? Number two, life transformation. It starts on the inside with a premise. That premise is that the word of Christ is dwelling within us richly and that the peace of Christ, verse 15, is ruling in our hearts. Number two, life transformation affects the outside with a precedent. And in fact, there's several precedents that we're gonna mention here in these verses. Uh, Skip down, let's read verses 17 through 22. Again, we won't have much time to go into a whole lot of detail here. I'll try my best. Verse 17. Whatever you do, you're going to see that phrase again in verse 23, the beginning. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Skip down to chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven. Now it's kind of shocking, but when we pick this verse up, verse 17, We haven't read the name Jesus in Colossians, even though this book is all about Jesus, that Jesus is enough, he's sufficient, he is perfect, he's complete for us to live a godly life. We haven't read his name uh, until Colossians chapter two, verse six was the last time we saw it. All of a sudden we go over a chapter later, chapter three, verse 17, and again we see the name of Jesus. We went from identity truth at the beginning of Colossians, chapter 1 and 2 into chapter 2, verse 6, now to identity transformation. In this whole section on identity transformation, we have not seen the name of Jesus. Now, Paul picks it up again in this transitional verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And this is exactly what we would expect in Colossians. Paul is effectively putting bookends, right at Colossians 2, 6 and Colossians 3, verse 17. And he's saying to us, the totality of our lives in our existence, must be lived with Christ Jesus in mind. Jesus is enough for us. Jesus is sufficient for us. I don't have to go into detail and tell you that the next handful of verses here are very controversial. Um, They're very polemical, and they're very difficult. And as easy as they are to read them, if you've grown grown up in the church, you know these verses probably really well. Some of us don't have problems with these verses at all. Other people do. And so let's just talk about it for a little bit. Colossians 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
is very close. It's almost a mere replica of what's written in Ephesians. In fact, a lot of the Ephesians content will be reflected in Colossians, just in a little bit more of an expanded way in Ephesians. And both passages are establishing what uh, Christian theologians have called the Christian household codes. The German word is hastafeln, as the German theologians used it. And there's these sections, both in the culture and in Scripture, where a certain ethic or morality or, or way of behaving was prescribed for you by the authorities who were over those things. A Christian and sometimes even a cultural ethic, uh, the life for society was described sometimes in the same way. This Bible is distinct in, in many avenues as well. The second we read verse 18, we get two words in and our, our sonars are going off, right? Wives, say it with me. Uh, man, see, you know, husbands love your wives, right? That's pretty easy. Now I'm just, oh, you guys just bear with me up here. Submission is a, it's a, it's a tough word biblically, and it's even harder to put it into practice for all of us. Uh, the Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us that husbands and wives, we submit to one another as we submit to Christ. So submission is not off the table for husbands. This is not something, a command that's reserved only for wives. We submit to the Lord ultimately first. Husbands and wives, we have a mutual submission to one another in many respects. All right, but the second we get to wives' submission, I want to read uh, for you what one writer talks about and just kind of give you the different perspectives and kind of the cultural milieu that we're dealing with in our postmodern society here. One writer says this, the so-called household codes of Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 and Colossians chapters 3 and 4 are often used to support the idea of gender roles. These gender roles usually boil down to the submission of all women to male-only authority. But these codes were not primarily about gender roles or even gender. They were really about power. That's, that's pretty typical of what you're going to hear out in the world today. The second you mention uh, submission in a context like this, all of a sudden everybody starts thinking about equality and how does this all flesh itself out in today's modern society. Other writers don't play the, the power card they prefer instead to play the background cultural card when engaging this passage. We know that Colossians was written in the first century. Here's what, here's what this sounds like. We know that Colossians was written in the first century, Ephesians as well. It was a Greco-Roman culture at that time. The culture was patriarchal. It was dominated by males in power. The culture was also one in which slavery was acceptable, even in the Bible doesn't necessarily condone slavery as much as give us these admonitions about slavery. And so somebody who takes that approach is saying, hey, listen, slavery was obviously the wrongful way to live in a culture and a society. And so here we've got a prescription for masters and slaves. That no longer applies to us because we've progressed past it. What about this command for husbands and wives? Wives submit. Haven't we progressed past that as well? And if we haven't, then why is there a distinction between those two groups of people? And why are we not thinking about that in the same way that we're thinking about slavery? Why not think about marriage in the same way we're thinking about those things from the culture? And biblical interpreters that, 
interpreters that dive deeply into cultural background studies say this kind of stuff. Verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Is the Bible really saying that slavery is acceptable? Today we would say, at the time in the culture, yeah. Today, no. Right? So what are we supposed to say about marriage because of that? The cultural norm was clearly wrong in the first century. As a society, we have progressed past that, right? So is wives submitting to husbands clearly wrong as well? Can't we progress past that? Some biblical interpreters develop what's called a, uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion, it's called. And there's, there's a big difference. I'm going to give you, it's oversimplification to say this, but um, there's a face value reading of the text when you come to passages like this. Then there's also somebody who reads the text and looks beneath it for things that maybe they want to draw out of it. So ultimately, you can read the Bible on a daily basis as a Christ-centered, redemptive history of what God has done, or you can read the Bible as a reader-centered religious document. That's no different than any other religious material that you would read in any other religion that was produced at this time, before this time, and, and shortly after, after. All of the views of the biblical text in the area of reader-centered, instead of taking the text at face value, and considering the original audience and what it meant to them, these interpretations make today's reader the primary audience, putting in their own meaning into the text, finding things that they want to see in the text that perhaps aren't there. In other words, it doesn't necessarily matter what Paul meant when he first wrote this text to the church in Colossae in the first century. What matters is how you read it and how you feel about it. And so, we read the text as a reader-centered approach with a hermeneutic of suspicion. What does this really mean for me? Instead of, what did it mean for Paul in the first century? I want you to think about the structure of the book for a second. Obviously, we're, we're going to promote a Christ-centered reading of the text, okay? I want you to think about the structure of Colossians before I go into this a little bit deeper. This whole time in Colossians, Paul has been covering broad truths about the gospel. We go back to Colossians chapter 1, and he started, and he talked about receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. He talked about forgiveness in the gospel, redemption in the gospel. He talked about faith in Jesus Christ to receive the truth of the gospel. Then he transitioned. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, the same way you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Then he transitioned from the truth of the gospel, receiving it, to now living a life that is transformed by the gospel, having an identity that is transformed by the gospel. And, and largely up to this point, all the commands that were given to us in Colossians 2, verse 6 onward, all the way up to this passage in chapter 3, all of them were universal to all Christians everywhere at all times. There was no distinction if you were male, female, if you were a husband, wife, if you were a child or a father, all of them were general prescriptions and commands given to all Christians because they apply to all Christians at all times. Then Paul did something 
that he rarely does in the New Testament. You will not find, you'll find, I find one passage of scripture that is written for children in all of the New Testament. Children, obey your parents. I don't, I don't find any other passage that is written specifically to kids for a command. This is Paul's one time that he addresses specific individuals, individual roles in society and in the culture. And we're coming to this passage and all the husbands are thinking to themselves like, okay, God, finally, there's something I'm going to hear in a church that actually applies to me in my life. As a husband, here's what you need to do to be more like Christ. Wives, here, finally, somebody is, the Apostle Paul is addressing me not everybody else, just me as a wife. Here's what I need to do. Kids, finally, the Apostle Paul is addressing me. Here's what I need to do as a faithful follower of Christ. We are leaning on the edge of our seats. We are waiting. We are listening intently. And then we get to this passage. I don't, are any of you guys let down by what's written here? First of all, every, every person, every group of people gets one command. Paul boils down what it means to be a faithful husband with one command, love your wife. He boils down what it means to be a faithful wife with one command, submit to your husbands. Do you, do you feel like there's something lacking there? You wish Paul would have gone into just a little bit more detail? Perhaps if you feel that way, these commands might seem mundane, archaic, impersonal. Maybe it's because the practical application of them hasn't totally affected your hearts and lives yet. Maybe it's because the difficulty of, of doing this one thing, husbands, wives, kids, is hard. It is not easy. Maybe it's because of the amount of faith and trust that it takes to actually faithfully obey what the Apostle Paul is calling us to in our homes, our marriages, and our families, and our workplaces. Paul goes to some of the most controversial thoughts for a, a postmodern culture. He takes major relationships in the family and in the workplace, and he boils them all down to, to one simple thing. First thing he says is, is wives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to submit to your husbands, and, and here's what that doesn't mean, all right? Submission does not mean, biblical submission as a wife does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Praise the Lord, wives. Thank you, Jesus. Biblical submission does not leave, mean you leave your brain at the altar when you get married and you become a doormat and you let your husband walk all over you and fail to think for yourself, to be a disciple of Christ for yourself to grow as a Christian for yourself. It doesn't mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. I mean, to speak for husbands, we need a lot of change, and we need our wives to help us in that change. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ and marriages working together for God's glory. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. It doesn't mean getting your personal spiritual strength through your husband. Biblical submission doesn't mean acting or living out of fear. Submission and biblical idea of fear, those two things are, um, are distinctly contrasted. You can submit with a fearless faith. 
in our marriages. Um, the very, my very favorite book, you guys know I'm a huge fan of Tim Keller. I don't agree with absolutely everything he says. He's fallible. He doesn't agree with, surprise, surprise, he doesn't agree with everything I say either. So, you know, we got that in common. The very best book I have on marriage is Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. And the, the chapter that he wrote on wives submit to your husbands was written by his wife, Kathy, in this. I really would recommend this. If you're looking for a good marriage book, you're new to marriage, you've been in marriage for a while, and you just need something to kind of uh, keep you guys going, and, and in Scripture, I would definitely recommend Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. And here's what she says in her chapter on submission. She says, whether you identi- identify yourself as an egalitarian Uh, equal, husband, wife, kind of things there. Whether you identify yourself as an egalitarian, a feminist, a traditionalist, or a complementarian, or any other variety on the interpretive spectrum, the differences between men and women will become an unavoidable issue in every marriage. Failure to come to terms with it is like tiptoeing around the proverbial elephant in the living room. Everyone, she says, every single person comes into marriage with an idea of roles, what they should be and what they look like to be carried out. Nobody comes into marriage without that. Nobody was raised in a vacuum. We all have our thoughts and ideas of what it should look like or what it could look like. But I want to read this, this because it's, it's so good how she kind of just dives into um, the tension behind this, the difficulty behind it, but also the glory, uh, different roles and responsibilities for husbands and wives. She says this, the first mention of gender in the Bible occurs with the very first mention of humanity itself. I'll take you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women are equally created in the image of God. This means that our, ma- our maleness or our femaleness is not incidental to our humanness, but constitutes its very essence God does not make us into a generic humanity that is later differentiated. Rather, from the start, we are male or female, which means, and she says this, every cell in your body is marked by either XX chromosome or XY chromosome. This means I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way that God has designed me, or if I despise the gifts he may have given to help me fulfill my calling. And then she says this, and here's how I just want to conclude. If the postmodern view that gender is wholly a social construct, construct, if gender is wholly a social construct, if that were true, then we could follow whatever path seemed good to us. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, however, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. So what she's saying is, There's an XX chromosome and there's an XY chromosome, males and females. And roles are designed to complement the way that we are designed by the Father at creation from the very beginning being created in the image of God. There's something about being a male designed that way by God that comes with certain roles and responsibilities. There's something about being a, a female designed that way by God that comes with certain roles and responsibilities. Wives, your role is to submit to the husbands. 
if you need a, a biblical definition of submission. Talked about what it isn't. John Piper's book on marriage, This Momentary Marriage, I think it is. This is what he says. Biblical submission stems from a beautiful faith and is marked with fearlessness. It's the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help him carry it out through her gifts. Biblical submission for a, for a wife is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it out according to her gifts. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's all you got to do is love them. The agape, sacrificial, costly love. That you will do whatever it costs you sacrificially for the betterment of your wife in your marriage. That you will go to whatever extent, whatever pain, whatever process, whatever arduous, significant, costly thing it takes to come alongside, to give of yourself completely for another person. In fact, a good definition of marriage is both husbands and wives giving of themselves for the betterment of the other person. Husbands, your responsibility is to sacrificially love your wives. John Piper, again, defines love in this way in marriage. He says it's taking the divine calling to be the head of your family with primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection and provision in the home. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. These roles are designed to complement the way that God created us. Children, your biblical ethic is to obey your parents in everything. And I love those last two words, in everything. That was my favorite part of that verse, in everything. All right? Man, I'm like zeroing in on the back row back there. My kids are actually very, very obedient. They're very respectful. So love you guys, man. Children, your biblical ethic is to obey your parents in everything. In all of the New Testament, again, I find one verse that commands you specifically what to do, and it's a command for obedience. And mom and dads, I, I know this one is tough, right? Because it's our responsibility to teach our children the beauty of obedience in the big things and in the little things. Uh, Chip Ingram has a, a study called Effective Parenting in a Defective World. Some of you guys probably have heard of it or seen parts of it. It's really, really good. He talks about the, the command and the responsibility of parents for children here. It says, this means that your number one priority as a parent, your number one priority is to teach your child to obey. Your number one priority is not to make them successful. Your number one priority is not to make them happy. Your number one priority, parents, is to teach your kids how to obey you, and then later, hopefully, in a godly way, through the gospel, through only the Holy Spirit's work, they will obey God. That's, that's our job as parents, especially at the beginning of those years. You start with a tight bottom of the funnel, and if they can get those basic lessons of obedience as they grow older, you widen the funnel and give them more freedom and more responsibility. A couple things. We've got to take the Lord's Supper in just a second. Dustin, if you want to come on down, that'd be great. Really quick here. Do not attempt to do this thing called marriage and family with another person who is not a Christian. 
Paul assumes, before he gets into the household codes, Paul assumes, husbands, you are going to marry Christian wives. Wives, you are going to marry Christian husbands. Women, men, you guys know what I'm saying there. Do not try to bring into the family this idea of a, of a missionary call to the family that you're gonna, you're gonna marry an unbeliever in, a, in an attempt to reach them with the gospel of Christ that is not prescribed for you in the gospel, that is not prescribed for you in scripture. Paul distinctly, in the Old Testament, you can go back to Abraham and, and searching for a wife for Isaac, he distinctly tells us that Christians marry Christians because if you don't get that right, if that's not in place first, Everything else is going to be a train wreck at the beginning. And I'm, I'm saying this to try to save you some steps. Right? And that's not to say if you married a non-Christian, there's not hope for your marriage. That's not to say that uh, you butchered this so bad that there's no way that you can pick up the pieces. All right? It's simply to say you haven't committed an unpardonable sin. However, as Christians, we get the foundation in place first, and that's a heart that has been totally transformed by the truth of the gospel, and without that, it makes family life so much more difficult. There's no hope of eternity uh, for people who don't know Christ, and it changes every, all the dynamics. It's easy to see this um, before Paul even got remotely close to commanding families and roles and responsibilities. He talked about the gospel he talked about receiving the truth of the gospel. He talked about a heart that is transformed by the gospel. So do not attempt to do this thing called family. Do not attempt to do this thing called life apart from Christian influence. Number two, a kingdom ethic drastically shifts with a God-centered perspective. A kingdom ethic drastically shifts with a God-centered perspective. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Whatever you do, verse 23, do it heartily for the Lord. If that's your perspective on life, family, relationships, work relationships, the glorification of Christ, the making of disciples, a life of peace that can rule in your hearts, the word of Christ richly dwelling within you can be done with the Holy Spirit's power. But the perspective changes everything for a life that is transformed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, just thank you so much for the truth that we have in, in Colossians chapter three, and it's so hard to begin to dive into uh, the details of these passages, just knowing what's happening in our culture and our world today. Um, Lord, I pray that the things that were said today were, um, were applicable, were good, were wholesome for what we need in our lives from the truth of your word, no matter where we find ourselves. God. I pray that you continue to uh, just morph us, inform us more and more into the image of Christ by, by looking to these commands in Scripture, by knowing the truth, and by practically applying it on a daily basis. Help us to do so with strength and courage, with fearlessness, with mutual submission, 
with love for one another. Help us to do so knowing that it is honoring and pleasing to you. We ask all of these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.